Good morning, church. <clears throat> the Lord is good, and the Lord reigns even when, it, when it's raining. Amen? So, for those of you who were not here last week, Pastor Ed, he preached on the importance of the Lord's Day, why the, Lord, the worship of the Lord's Day is so important, and he blessed us mightily. Um, this week's sermon is about a particular aspect of the Lord's Day worship, and that's singing, singing to the Lord. So let's go to the Lord and ask him to help us. Oh God, we need you this morning, oh Lord. We pray, God, that you would incline our hearts to hear your testimonies, O oh Lord, and focus our affections and our desires on you. And God, we pray that you would crush everything that would oppose that. God, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law this morning. Unite our hearts to fear your holy name, God, and captivate us with who you are. Lord, we pray that you would satisfy us all with your steadfast love and your mercy. Impress on our hearts the fact that your covenant love has been poured out on all of your people through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I need your help today, O oh God, to preach your word rightly, to do what you have commanded all preachers to do, and that is to glorify your name in the hearts of these people, O oh God. Lord, I'm just a man, and I cannot do this without your help, so I beg you, O oh Lord, to help me. It's in the holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. Let me write the songs of a nation, and I care not who writes its laws. So said Scottish politician Andrew Fletcher. And what makes this comment so intriguing is that this man is a politician. Politicians want to write laws in lots of them. Yet he recognized the power of song to capture and mold people's imaginations and attitudes toward life. Fletcher's statement reveals that he understands how songs and music can influence a nation's identity and shape an individual's beliefs. Fletcher's statement here is about songs in general. But the Psalms have a unique ability to influence and shape believers, both in our orthodoxy, the things we believe, and our orthopraxy, the, thing, the ways that we live. And just as Fletcher recognized that songs convey, convey powerful messages, this Psalm, Psalm 100, communicates the truth that Yahweh is sovereign and he is good to his people. This opening command in Psalm 100 to make a joyful noise to the Lord should be seen as an invitation for the people of God to act, actively participate in shaping the identity of the church. Those who recognize God is good and acknowledge his goodness. This opening command to make a joyful noise to the Lord is directed towards all people and it demands not only that all people publicly worship the Lord, but that all people publicly worship the Lord with joy and thanksgiving in their hearts. And this 
This is where the problem is right here, family. This is where the problem is for two reasons. At the time when this psalm was composed, only a minority of the world worshipped Yahweh. All people did not worship Yahweh. And even today, not all people worship the Lord. Furthermore, among those people who do worship the Lord, many of us fail to do so with joy and thanksgiving in our hearts. To borrow from Pastor Rolo, as many of us, when we sing, we stand up here like we've been sucking on a lemon or lick the business end of a 9-volt battery, right? <laughs> nevertheless, nevertheless, our purpose today is clear from the Word of God, is to urge all people to worship Yahweh with joy and thanksgiving because Yahweh is God and He is good. Amen? Our text today is Psalm 100. Psalm 100 is the crescendo of a collection of seven psalms known as the Yahweh Moloch collection, which translates the Lord reigns, the Lord's reigns. And this collection spans from the 93rd psalm all the way to the 100th psalm. And all these psalms care, uh, uh, share a common theme of praising and celebrating the sovereignty, kingship, and reign of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Together they celebrate his sovereignty and majesty, reminding us, of, reminding us of his authority, not only over Israel, but over all of creation. And echoing through this entire collection of seven psalms is a call to acknowledge and worship the Lord. And at the heart of this collection we see is here is Psalm 100, resounding with an exuberant tone that has led some people to refer to this psalm as a psalm, the psalm of thanksgiving, or the jubilate deo, which is Latin for, oh, be joyful in the Lord. So in the opening stanza, this psalm is, is in two stanzas. So in the open, opening stanza of this psalm, uh, verses one through three, we discover four commands. We see four commands followed by this compelling motivation. So in the first stanza, the first, we see four commands. They are, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing, and know the Lord. Those are the first four commands, and they are followed by the motivation. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. And then in the second stanza that span across verses four through five, they present us with another set of commands. Those commands are enter into his gates with thanksgiving, in his courts with praise, give him thanks, bless his name. And that too is followed by a motive. Yahweh is good. Yahweh is good. So what that does is that gives us our sermon in a sentence, if you've fallen along on your hand out there, which is because Yahweh is God and good, we should worship and serve him with joy and with thanksgiving. Look with me at verse 1 of this psalm. The word of God commands us, to make a joyful noise to the Lord, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Now, depending on your Bible translation, verse 1 might read, shout triumphantly, shout joyfully, shout with joy, or shout for joy to the Lord. Now, these variations don't mean that you got a bad Bible translation. All it means is, is that these variations are trying to communicate idea a particular idea that have a common theme. They emphasize shouting joyfully or triumphantly as an expression of public 
worship and praise to the Lord. And they convey the idea that your voice in joyful worship directed to the Lord is commanded by God. Simply put, Psalm 100 verse 1 is an authoritative directive from your God and King commanding you to, to triumphant worship in joyful praise. That is a command from God, right? So we need to stop here for a moment and consider the phrase joyful noise, okay? So that we don't try to import our preferred definition into the text, right? So because all my Reformed Baptist friends are going to get mad at me and all my Pentecostal friends about to get mad at me. So I plan on losing all my friends today, <laughs> right? Listen, the command to make a joyful noise is not intended to cater to the musically challenged or the tone deaf, right? He's not simply telling you because you can't sing, just be loud. That's not what's going on here. It's not loudness for the sake of loudness. It doesn't mean to shout anything for any reason, right? The command to make a joyful noise to Yahweh is a public expression of respect and honor to the king. It is a shout of acclamation. It is a call to make the same joyful noise Israel would make when a new king was crowned over the nation. One commentator aptly described making a joyful noise to Yahweh as the worship equivalent of a homage shout to a king. The word of God provides us with vivid illustrations of this idea. In 1 Kings uh, chapter 1, verse 39, the word of God says, Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. And then they sounded the trumpets and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon! The people followed him, playing pipes and rejoicing greatly so that the ground shook with the sound. Likewise, in Matthew chapter 21, Matthew 21, verses 8 through 9, a large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed him shouted, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Both these passages vividly illustrate people joyfully from the heart showing respect and homage to their king. Now, furthermore, the command in Psalm 100 verse 1 echoes other psalms such as Psalm 95 verse 1 and Psalm 66 verse 1, which employ similar language to express the idea of heartfelt, exuberant worship through joyful noise to King Yahweh. Now, Psalm 91 urges the people of God, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 66 verse 1 declares, Shout for joy to God all the earth. And this command is echoed in Psalm 98, Psalm 98 verses 4 through 6, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth, break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. All of these psalms, all of these psalms call for exuberant, heartfelt, enthusiastic worship of Yahweh through joyful noise. 
So in this opening command, family, we are confronted with a double-edged directive. Not only is the Lord commanding all people to publicly worship him, but he is also directing the disposition of our hearts that we must have when we publicly worship him. Simply being here and singing falls short, falls, rewind, no, no, no. Simply just being here on Sunday and singing falls woefully short and is woefully inadequate of fulfilling this command to obey, we must publicly worship the Lord with joyful hearts. In this way, all peoples of the earth are commanded that when they approach the temple, that they must acknowledge that Yahweh is the Lord and that this, his temple, is the place where the king of all the earth resides. This command is commanding people, when you enter into the temple, when you enter into the king's presence, you ought to shout, long live the king. You are our king, and we are your subjects. This second command, the second command that we talked about is found in the second half, I'm sorry, in the first half of verse 2. It's in the verse, first half of verse 2. It says, serve the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness. Now, again, depending on your Bible translation, it might, it might read, worship the Lord with gladness. Worship the Lord with gladness. So I suggest that the reason for this is that to serve the Lord and to worship the Lord are far more connected than we can imagine, right? To worship God is far, has a far deeper meaning than simply going, showing up to church on Sunday morning and singing, right? And so what's interesting about this interconnectedness between serving the Lord and worshiping the Lord is that it is a relationship that is far more profound than it might initially appear. So this term serve, as translated here, primarily in this text refers to temple worship. Nevertheless, this word as as is here rendered in the ESV is littered throughout Old Testament. Okay, allow me to illustrate two examples. In Exodus 9.13, the Bible says this, Then the Lord says to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus saith the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. That's the same word. In Exodus 14.12, it says, Is this not, Exodus 14.12, Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? This is the people of God talking to Moses. Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Those are the same words. Now clearly, clearly in Exodus 9.13, the word is synonymous with worship. And on the other hand, in Exodus uh, 14.12, the term is conveying the notion of being a servant or working for somebody else. Now, yes, I know it's true that words have semantic ranges and they're the definitions that we should be using are based on the context. Yes, I know that. I agree. However, would it be wrong to say that to serve the Lord is to worship him and to worship the Lord is to also serve him? Would it be wrong to say that? 
No. Is it not accurate to claim that serving the Lord inherently encompasses every aspect of your life, whether that's in a worship service or through your righteous and holy living? Would it be wrong to say that? No. No. Can we not rightfully affirm that worshiping the Lord entails orienting your entire existence around him? Right? The notion of serving and worshiping the Lord therefore appears to be intertwined, reflecting a comprehensive dedication that transcends you just being here on Sunday singing. Okay? As we serve the Lord, we worship the Lord. And as we worship the Lord, we serve the Lord. And each action, whether it's in the gathered worship service on Sunday or in our daily lives, become an offering of devotion and dedication to the God that saved you. The third command, the third command of the, the 100th Psalm is in the second half, the second half of verse 2. And it says, come into his presence with singing. Come into his presence with singing. So in the same way that our shouts for joy, of joy, are not supposed to be just empty noise, but joyful expressions of worship toward our God and our King, our singing is not the singing of any kind of song. Okay? The songs that we sing should be songs that praise the Lord. You can't sing whatever you want. You, you're not supposed to just pick songs that make you feel happy. That's not worship music. Okay? They should praise him for his mighty works in saving his people. They should praise him for his mighty works in preserving his people. And they should praise him for his mighty works in providing for his people. The songs we sing in worship are supposed to express the gratitude, the awe, and the devotion that we have to God by focusing on him and his deeds for his people. So some of the music that y'all like, it ain't bad. You just shouldn't be singing in here in the worship service. That's all. Just listen to it at home. We just shouldn't be singing in here. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's worship music. There's music that it's okay for you to listen to. And then there's worship music that we should be singing with the people of God. And it's not all the music that you like. I told you I was going to lose all my friends today. <laughs> this command to come into his presence with singing, it highlights the relational and close nature of worship. So because this is what it says, this, this phrase here, come into his presence with singing, could, it could literally be translated, come before his face, come before his face. And also all people are commanded to come before the king, before the presence of the king with joyful singing, with joyful songs. Okay, this is the same instruction that the Lord gave to Israel in Psalm 107, verse 21. Psalm 107, verse 21, and he instructs Israel, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. The command here in verse 2, the second half of verse 2, is like the command that we see in Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2, Psalm 2, 
verse 10 and 11. For the Lord commands the kings to be wise and to be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The difference being that instead of fear and trembling that we see in Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 100 is commanding joy, gladness, and joyful singing. So joy and gladness are not inconsistent with godly fear, right? So some of you might hear this and say, so which is it? Am I supposed to serve the Lord and worship him with joy, or am I supposed to serve the Lord and worship him with fear? It's not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. It's not. They're not inconsistent. Joy and gladness is not inconsistent with godly fear. One could argue that the greater sense of godly fear you have, the greater the sense of joy you're going to have in the Lord. Right? Godly fear, godly fear, rightly understood, will actually enhance the depth of your joy in worship. Right? Not only can godly fear coexist with joyful worship and service, it amplifies joyful uh, worship. So Psalm 39 or 34 verse 9 says, Oh, fear the Lord, you saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Right? Psalm uh, 112 verse 1, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commands. I could keep going. It's a thousand of these. I got to move on because of time. It's another one. Isaiah 61 verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall extol in, in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He covered me with the robe of righteousness. Family, all of these passages, all of these passages highlight the coexistence of godly fear and joy in a believer's relationship with the Lord. Godly fear and joy are not mutually exclusive. It's not one or the other. They amplify one another in the context of public worship and service to the Lord. Amen? Amen. The fourth command, the fourth command in the first Stanza. You see it in verse 3. Verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. Know that the Lord, he is God. So we need to stop here for a minute and understand something about this command. Know that the Lord is God. The command to know that the Lord is God is not just a passing verse in this psalm. Know that the Lord, he is God is not merely a suggestion. It is not simply a command among other commands. It is the soul, the rhythm, and the heartbeat, both structurally and theologically, of this entire psalm. If you get this wrong, you can't do the other stuff. If you don't know him, if you don't know the Lord the way the Bible is commanding, you will never make a joyful noise to the Lord. If you don't know the Lord the way the Bible is commanding you to know him, you will never serve the Lord with gladness. And if you don't know the Lord the way the Bible is commanding you to know the Lord, you will never come into his presence and sing with joy. So know that the Lord, he is God. It echoes through every verse of this psalm. It tempers every line of this song, psalm, and it colors every thought conveyed in Psalm 100. This command to know that the Lord is God is a fascinating command. 
The first three commands that we saw were to make a joyful noise, serve the Lord, and to sing. This fourth command, to know the Lord, like I said, is different than the rest. Because the first three commands are actions. They're actions that you could do, and they are therefore, they are therefore matters of the will. Okay? But this command is a matter of the heart and the mind. Okay? So I can watch and see if you are committed or if you are um, fulfilling the first three commands. I could just look around and see, are you singing like you should be? Right? This last command is a matter of the heart. And it's the foundation for the other three. Right? This is the point right here where contemporary modern-day believers begin to have trouble right here, okay? Because we tend to think of knowing as this abstract, theoretical concept, right? Uh, for the modern mind, we often reduce knowledge to simply theory or just having the right information, right? If I, I know God because I got the right information about him, right? But a biblical understanding of knowing God transcends more than just an intellectual exercise, okay? To know God means more than having the right accumulated information about him, right? To know the Lord is to follow the Lord's commands and to do the Lord's will. In the scriptures, there is absolutely zero division between theoretical knowledge of God and practical knowledge of God, okay? The scriptures... The word of God dismisses any dichotomy between what you believe and what you do, right? There is no separation between doctrine and practice, okay? So in other words, to truly know God is to obey God. But we say it all the time. We say it all the time. We falsely say this all the time. Oh, such and such, he's so smart. Uh, they, they know so much about the Bible and God. Uh, no, they don't if they're not obeying him. No. That's wrong. You don't have sound doctrine if you are not obeying Jesus. To know God is to be changed by his word, to be changed by him, and to have a life that is characterized by obedience, righteousness, love, and holiness, and to be changed into the conformity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the reason why when men walk up here with the big seminary, with, I'm sorry, with the little seminary degrees, right, and they don't obey the Lord, they don't get in this pulpit because you don't have sound doctrine. Men, listen to me. If you plan on preaching one day and you think you got sound doctrine, but you don't love your wife, you don't have sound doctrine. If you think you got sound doctrine and you don't love the bride of Christ, you don't have sound doctrine. You just got a bunch of information that will get you in hell. To know God is to obey him. To know God is to have your heart transformed into a heart, into a life that reflects the life of Christ. You don't know Jesus. You don't know Yahweh because you got the right information about him. The devil got the right information about him, and the devil and all of his minions will be in hell for eternity when Christ comes to consummate everything that he promised. Don't be one of those people. You don't know Jesus because you got the right doctrine. That's not biblical. 
That's not biblical. That's not Christianity. We're still in some. I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. <laughs> Listen, if you don't obey the Lord, your knowledge of God is defective and devilish. Whatever knowledge you have, if it does not lead you to obey the Lord, it is defective, it is broken, and it is from the pit. Okay? Hear the word of the Lord. Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? We're still in verse 3. Look at the command again to know that the Lord, he is God. The word that the ESV translates, know, depending on your, again, depending on your Bible translation, it might read acknowledge, acknowledge. This further reinforces the idea that what the command is telling us to do is more than have a bunch of head knowledge about the Lord. In other words, this command is requiring all people, everybody, all people, to acknowledge, to confess, and to admit that the Lord is their God. The Lord is their God. That's why I said this is a fascinating command and claim. So allow me to explain here. And so in your English Bible, that the command to know that the Lord is God should be in all caps, right? So what that means is, is that the writer is using God's personal covenant name, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And that means this, that the command issued here in verse 3, which is going out to the all people, all people everywhere across the entire globe, is to know that Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, alone is God. That Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, the God of the Exodus, is the sovereign king of every nation. Jesus, the Lord, is king of everybody, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, not just believers, everybody. Amen? They're just in rebellion. That's all. They're just rebellious. All of these commands apply to you if you're in here today and you're not a believer. You're just in rebellion. That's all. Okay? So what that means then is this for all people. What that means is because Yahweh is the only God, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible is the only God. So what that means is, is that your sun gods are not gods, your moon gods are not gods, your star gods are not gods, and that little God that you made in your imagination is not God either. Right? They're all idols. There's only one true God, and only Yahweh, only Yahweh. Israel's covenant redeemer is the true God. Family, Psalm 100, verse 3 without qualification, without qualification, claims Yahweh, Israel's God, alone is worthy of worship and service. No one else, no one else. And this is why all people, all people should make a joyful noise to Yahweh, Israel's God, and serve him with gladness and singing because Yahweh is God alone. Amen, church? So these harmonious parallel commands that we just read in verses 1 through 3 
In them we hear this profound truth, that joyful expressions of worship, glad service, heartfelt singing, and true biblical knowledge of God dance together to form a symphony of devotion that should ring from your heart into the presence of our God and King. The first command to make a joyful noise. The second command to serve the Lord with gladness. The third command to come into his presence with singing. And the fourth command to know that Yahweh is God. Encourage, not only encourage joyful praise, but also underscore the deep and comprehensive nature of what worship and service are supposed to look like to the Lord. Amen, church? So this set of four commands that we see here at the end of this first stanza of Psalm 100, they conclude with a reminder. Look at verse 3. We're in verse 3. The end of verse 3. It says this. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people in the sheep of his pasture. So this reminder, what it does is, is it provides us with a reason and a motivation for all people to obey those first four commands that we just read in our public worship, okay? It is he who made us. We are his, and we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. These statements are covenantal statements, meaning that every one of these statements, first and foremost, apply to the people of God, Israel. This statement, it is he who made us, is not a reference to the creation of man. It's not but to the formation of God's people. Isaiah 43 verse 1 says this, But now thus saith the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. And later on in that same chapter, Isaiah 43 verse 20, the Lord describes Israel as my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. The Lord made and formed Israel the same way a potter shapes clay. He made a covenant with their father Abraham, their forefather Abraham, when he called him out of Babylon. The Lord redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. He made a covenant with them on Mount Sinai, and he ushered them into the promised land. Israel, the nation, are his people. They belong to him. They are his special possession. Furthermore, Israel, the sheep of his pasture, are the sheep of his pasture. Uh, Yahweh is the shepherd of Israel. Uh, The 79th Psalm in verse 13 says this, We are your people, the sheep of your pasture. We will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. In Jeremiah 23, uh, verse 1, the Lord declared, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. And again, in Ezekiel 34, verse 31, the Lord declared, You are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture. I am your your God, declares Yahweh. So because Yahweh is God, and we are his people, we ought to worship him with joy and serve him. Amen? Amen. So the next stanza, the next stanza begins in verse 4, begins in verse 4, and just like the first stanza, 
it gives us commands. This time we get three commands. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Second command is to give thanks to him. And the third command is to bless his name. So the first stanza, stressed, joyful praise, is stressed, joyful praise. The second stanza, it emphasizes thanksgiving. So notice in verse 4, if you look at verse 4, it says, enter his gates with thanksgiving. And then again it says, give him thanks. So all people are commanded to enter into the temple gates in Jerusalem, to go into his courts, to offer thanksgiving. This again is about points to public worship of God. So given all the benefits that Israel received from the Lord, thanksgiving and praise are appropriate sacrifices for these people. So further, thanksgiving and praise play a central role in, the, in, work, in Israel's temple worship. The word of God emphasizes the offering of sacrifices, songs, and prayers of thanksgiving as an integral component of Israel's worship to Yahweh. So in Psalm uh, 116, verses uh, 17 through 19, the psalmist vows he will offer to you, Lord, the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people in the courts of the house of the Lord in your midst, O Jerusalem. For the people of Israel, the temple is the central place of worship. The act of entering into the gates and courts imply a deliberate approach to God's presence for worship. His gates and his courts, yes, they're physical structures uh, that represent access to God's presence and an opportunity for communion with him. And temple worship was a tangible expression of Israel's covenant relationship with God. So in the temple was the place where God's presence dwelled among the people of Israel, and they were affirmed, and they, this is the place where they affirmed their commitment to the covenant. Exodus 25 verse 8 says, and let them make me a sanctuary that they may, that I may dwell in their midst. And in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 7 verses 1 through 3, after Solomon dedicated the temple, God's glory filled the temple. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So this language here, enter into the gates and into his courts, this is the language of temple access. And just like the first stanza was composed of a series of commands, that concluded with a reminder that functioned as a motivation for that command. This second stanza is composed in the same way. It has three commands, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, give him thanks, bless his name, and it's concluded with a reminder that provides us with a motivation to obey. Look at verse 5. It says, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. These final commands to enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise and to give him thanks are followed by 
a motivation that is composed of three covenantal statements, right? The first statement is, for the Lord is good, Yahweh is good. This is a classic justification for why we ought to worship the Lord. Why should we bring praise to Yahweh? Because he's good. It's simple. You've been paying attention. When we say that God is good, what we mean is, is that the Lord has a gracious disposition, a gracious disposition and a permanent commitment to do what is beneficial and kind. All right? And we also mean that the Lord has an impeccable moral disposition and a permanent commitment to do what is morally right. I'm going to say that again. God has a gracious disposition and a permanent commitment to do what is beneficial and kind. And he has an impeccable moral disposition in permanent commitment to do what is morally right. Both of those together is what we mean when we say God is good. Now, this statement, God is good, may be a simple statement, but we could spend the rest of our entire lives trying to fully understand it and grasp what the Bible means when the Bible says that God is good. Amen, church? In fact, all people are going to spend eternity occupied by the idea that God is good. If you're a believer, you're going to spend eternity fascinated by the fact that God is good. And if you're an unbeliever, you're going to spend eternity crushed by the fact that God is good. Pastor Greg Nichols of Reformed Baptist Seminary says this about God's goodness. Nothing more, nothing more satisfies the hunger of God's children for the experiential knowledge of God than feeding our souls on the goodness of God. Family, when Moses pleaded with the Lord in Exodus 33, 19, please show me your glory. The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Clearly the Lord views his goodness as essential to his divine nature and the Lord regards his goodness as not just a trait, but a fundamental aspect of his glory and his identity. When you say Yahweh's name, you're supposed to immediately think he is good. Our recognition of God's goodness as a fundamental aspect of his identity is supposed to lead you to express joyful worship and gratitude and praise the Lord. The second, the second reminder is his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. We're still in verse 5. God's love is steadfast. His love is steadfast. Here in verse 5, this word steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed. It is the faithful love of the covenant Lord Yahweh. When we say that God's love is steadfast, what we mean is that God's love is a resolute, never failing, never ending, 
never-fading kind of love. It is an eternally loyal, eternally reliable, eternally trustworthy kind of love. It is fixed, it's determined, it's committed, it's devoted, it's permanent, it's constant, it's stable, it's firm, and it's unwavering. His love does not change with time. It does not fold under pressure. It does not give up loving you when you being difficult to love. And it does not divorce for irreconcilable differences. God's steadfast love in Hesed is a part of his nature. And his acts of love are more than just expressions of his affection. It is a part of who he is by nature. So, again, our recognition of God's steadfast love as a fundamental part of his identity is supposed to lead you to joyful worship and express gratitude and to praise him. Amen? The third reminder, his faithfulness to all generations. This third motivation for praise to Yahweh is rooted in God's faithfulness. God is always faithful to his covenant promises. Amen? When we say God is faithful, here's what we mean. God is supremely trustworthy. Supremely trustworthy because of his infallible veracity and unfailing reliability. Now, don't be afraid of the word veracity. I pay for a seminary degree, so I got to use some of these words every now and again. I will, I will explain it to you. Veracity. Listen to me. By in by. By infallible veracity, we mean that the Lord is a person who speaks and everything he says is truth. Okay? Everything that the Lord says, whether spoken or written, is truth. Right? Hebrews 1.1 says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The word he spoke to Adam was truth. The day that you eat of it, you will surely die. His covenant promises to Noah, to Abraham, and to David are truth. The law he spoke from heaven at Mount Sinai to Israel is truth. The gospel that he finally and fully spoke to the Lord through the Lord Jesus Christ is truth. All of God's word is truth. Further, whatever the Lord says is in complete accord with fact and reality. So, I could think something is true, but I could be wrong. Right? It's like, like some of y'all looking at me right now and go, he's like six feet tall. You're wrong. <laughs> right? You just had a, you had a bad angle right now. I'm not that tall. But you could actually believe that. Right? That doesn't make you a liar. That just makes you wrong. God's never wrong. Everything that God says is in complete accord with fact and reality. The Lord does not and cannot err because he perceives reality with infinite accuracy and precision. He sits outside of time, he knows the beginning, he knows the end, and he sees it all, everything, perfectly. Nothing he says is wrong. It's always in accord with fact and reality. God can never be wrong or mistaken. Now, when you read the Bible and get confused, that's you, that's not him. He knows exactly what he means. God is not the author of confusion. The problem is always with you, never with him. Right? He can never be wrong. He can never be mistaken. 
The Lord cannot lie. The Lord cannot lie. The Lord always communicates with an absolute commitment to truthfulness. The Lord never deliberately misrepresents what he knows to be true, and every word he speaks is truth. That's the first half of what we mean when we say veracity. The second half is, is that because, uh, I'm sorry, that's why God is faithful. It's because he's veracity, because of his veracity. Everything he says is truth for those various reasons. Now, the second reason why God is faithful is because of his unfailing reliability, his unfailing reliability. Every word the Lord speaks comes to pass, whether promise, whether threat, or prediction. You understand? Promise, threat, or prediction. Now, we make promises all the time that we don't keep, right? The Lord never does that. The Lord never does that. My mother threatened me to, to spank me a bunch of times and she forgot sometime. Praise the Lord, <laughs> right? The Lord never, never fails on any promise or any threat or any prediction, right? He's utterly reliable. He always says what, he always does what he says he will do. His word always accomplishes what he sent his word to accomplish. And all of these facts frame for us his unfailing reliability. God's faithfulness is displayed in his veracity and his reliability, and they are a part of who he is, his very nature. Family, in our recognition of God's faithfulness as a fundamental part of his identity should naturally lead you to joyous worship and gratitude and to praise him. Amen? So the Lord's goodness, his steadfast love, his, and his faithfulness present to every person good reason to sing his praises with joy, with gratitude, and thankfulness to the Lord. Family, we need to take notice of something here at this point. In these two, in this first, in this second stanza of both of the, at these psalms. So both of these stanzas end with, the motive, with motives that should drive us to joyful worship of the Lord Yahweh. So in the first the first motivation that we saw at the end of verse 3, which was, it is he who made us and we are his and we are his people, the sheep of his pasture, is relational. It's a relational motivation. It's a personal, relational motivation. It calls us to recognize the reality of who Yahweh is to us, who Yahweh is to us. And the fact that Yahweh is God and it, it is he who made us and is, we are his and we are his people, the sheep of his pasture, ought to drive us to joyful worship and exuberant worship and praise of Yahweh. The second motivation that we just went through at the end of verse 5 is based on God's being. His, it's an ontological motivation and cause us to recognize the reality of who Yahweh is in himself. God is good. His love is steadfast. God is faithful. And all of these truths ought to drive you to joyful worship and praise and gratitude to him. The Lord is deserving of our joyful worship because of his role in our lives and because of who he is intrinsically. Simply put, we ought to joyfully worship the Lord both because of 
who he is to us and who he is in himself. Amen? So because Yahweh is God and Yahweh is good, we should worship him with joy and serve him. So, I know you got questions. And I'm certain some of the believers that are listening to this are struggling at this point. Because it's clear what this psalm is commanding all of us to do is to worship Yahweh, but to worship him with joy and thanksgiving, right? So does, I suspect the struggles with the, with the, the idea that we have to, the, the Lord is commanding us to worship him with joy. So, and you're asking, since I cannot make myself feel joy, how am I supposed to obey this command? That's an excellent question. I just want you to consider something. First, despite the fact that the genuine experience of joy might seem beyond your control, God has every right to prescribe and demand whatever he pleases respecting his worship. Right? Yahweh is God. And as God, he inherently possesses the authority to dictate the manner in which he is worshipped. The Lord in his wisdom in history chose a fixed place that he designated for worship at the temple. And in this command to worship him in the temple, it was binding on his people. Later, the Lord, again, in his divine wisdom, nullified these distinctions tied to a specific place in John chapter 4, verse 21, when he was talking to the Samaritan woman, and he said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. When the Lord Jesus said this, what he did was he made it sinful for any man to make a law or a rule tying God's worship to a single location. So God has the right to abrogate and change any law he, so, he sees fit to do, right? And just as he exercised his prerogative to assign a physical place to worship in the past, he retains the same authority today to demand the emotion of joy from his people when we worship him, right? Family, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God and possesses the unquestionable right to set forth whatever requirements he deems fit for his worship, and that includes our emotions. Amen? Second, your question, it assumes too much. Your question assumes too much, and it proves that you have a flawed understanding of human emotions. Your question, since I can't make myself feel emotion or feel the emotion of joy, how am I supposed to obey this command? It assumes the premise. You can't make yourself feel joy. Right? So most of us, including Christians, have an incorrect view of our emotions. Right? We see our emotions as these spontaneous reactions or to some external stimuli and for that reason, we believe 
that all we can do is suppress and control our emotions. That's not true. That's not true. Our emotions are directly tied to our hearts and our minds. All of your prejudices, all of your knowledge, all of your sensibilities, your priorities, your affections, your beliefs, and your attitudes determine every single one of your emotional responses to everything. Right? So, for, let me give you an example. So, one of our members, one of our church members, died suddenly. And it was unexpected, and it was shocking. That member was David Mann. Now, some of you have no idea who I'm talking about. And therefore, your emotional response is very different than it would have been had I said Pablo Navarro, Linda Jones, or Murtis Tanner. Amen? So what's the difference? Well, it's your knowledge of, affection for, relationship with, and attitude towards every one of those people I just mentioned. So what's my point? The point is, is that your emotions are not spontaneous. They are not spontaneous, uncontrolled reactions. And consequently, your joy in worship is not spontaneous, uncontrolled reactions. It is directly related to your knowledge of, affection for, relationship with, and attitude towards who the Lord is and what the Lord has done. I'm going to say that again. Your joy in worship is directly tied to what you believe about the Lord of glory. It is directly tied to your affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's directly tied to your relationship with him and your attitude towards what he has done to save you. So, the reason why some of y'all suck on a lemon, when y'all come, at, like, look like y'all sucking on a lemon, when y'all singing in here and y'all hearts are not full of joy, is because you don't know him that well. Some of us don't know him at all. We're not close to him. We don't know what his word says. We don't understand what grace is. We don't know the gospel well enough to know that this should draw affection out of us. That's why you don't have no joy in worship. That's why you don't have no joy when we come here to worship the Lord. It's not, because of the, it's not because of the tempo of the songs. It's not because it's a hymn. It's not because of the type of song. that I know some of y'all think that and y'all are not going to be my friends no more, but that's not the reason, okay? Jesus is Lord. All of your sins was nailed on the cross. That's true whether it's over a bluegrass beat, if it's a, 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 a Gaelic song, if it's over a hymn, if it's from a hymnal, if it's CCM music, Jesus is Lord. It don't matter. It don't matter what it sounds like. It don't matter what it sounds like. Yes, the pastors want to see this church, First Baptist Church of the Lakes, joyfully worship the Lord and to praise him exuberantly. But we want you to do so. But I'm sorry. We don't. We don't want you to do so absent of genuine affection for the Lord, right? 
We don't want you to whip yourself up into a frenzy, an emotional frenzy, and just sing loud for no reason. Right? All of the pastors, I'm speaking for all the pastors right now, all of us believe that public worship should be joyful and it should be exuberant. But we also know that true worship must be motivated by our knowledge of God's covenant love for his people. It, got, it has to be motivated by our affection for the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done to redeem and save us. It has to be motivated by our relationship that we have with him and his bride. I'm going to say that again. Him and his bride. See, you're not going to come here with the Lord's bride and sing joyfully if you don't love her. If you don't love her, you're not going to do that. It's quiet. Our attitude towards the love, the Lord's steadfast love, what you believe about the Lord's steadfast love is absolutely what is determining your emotional to reaction to when we sing this, sing these songs. Now, Pastor Ed is going to sing this song later, right? It is well with my soul. And it's a line in that song when it says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Now, I have heard that song sung a million different ways. And if you, I don't care what style you are singing that song in. Your emotional reaction to that line is directly tied to what you believe about your sin. Amen? So, we want you to joyfully sing to the Lord and to do it because you believe that Yahweh alone is God and that Yahweh is good. So, the answer to your question, because I didn't forget that you asked me a question. The answer to your question is your emotional response of joy in worship, it was either cultivated or crushed long before you walked in this building today. Right? Dear Christian, if you cultivate your affection for the gospel, if you grow in your knowledge of his word, and you learn to appreciate his graces and love his bride, then when we gather together to sing about our covenant Lord and his steadfast love, joy will be your immediate emotional response. Amen? Now, there's another question that you're asking. If you're not asking it, you should be asking it. Okay? Pastor, verse 1 says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. But your entire sermon, you've been talking about God's people, Israel. You said, Yahweh is the shepherd of Israel. In fact, you said the statement in verse 3, it is he who made us, we are his, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture, applied to God's people, Israel. So which is it? Is it all people or his people? So first, that's a very long question. And it means that you've been paying attention. Second, it's an excellent question. So you are correct. The expressions his people 
and the sheep of his pasture are clearly referring to God's covenant people. That is unquestionable. Right? In fact, the language of the psalm is covenantal through and through. Even the commands to come into the temple and to enter his gates are directed to God's covenant people. And any Israelite singing this psalm at the time of its composition would have understood those commands to come into his presence in the context of temple worship as the dwelling place of God among the Israelites. So for an Israelite singing this psalm, the command coming to his presence could have only been obeyed by physically being in this specific location in the temple. So they rightly understood that access into the presence of the Lord was the particular privilege of Israel. And this psalm is demanding that from all people. So it seems like the command to all the earth is impossible to obey because all people are restricted not only from entering into the temple, but also entering into the courts. So like I said, it was a great question. And I submit to you that your question can only be sufficiently answered when you understand Psalms 1 in the light of the person in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 100 is prophetically pointing forward to a future period when all people from all nations will gather together to worship Yahweh and have full access into the temple's gates and into the temple's courts. The call to all the earth to make a joyful noise and to know him reflect the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan for his creation, global worship, and universal covenant knowledge commanded in Psalm 100 find their ultimate fulfillment in the promise of the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, verse 33, it emphatically declares that, the new co- that in the new covenant that the Lord will make, that the Lord will put my law within them and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each, say, each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The new covenant, as stated here in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant guarantees universal covenant knowledge for every member. The new covenant guarantees complete forgiveness for every member. The new and the new covenant is not limited to a specific place, ethnic group, but it includes people from every tribe, from every tongue, and from every nation who will come together to worship the Lord. So I said earlier that Psalm 100 would have been a challenge and it would have, may have challenged the worldview of the Israelites singing this song at the time that it was composed. But it, maybe it shouldn't have been. Because what I was reading from you was from the, was from the Old Testament. Right. right? Because what Psalm 100 is doing, it is directing our focus to the complete fulfillment of what God promised. Right? It is focusing our attention forward to the complete fulfillment of the new covenant and to the end of redemptive history. It's a history that he hinted at in the garden, 
that he established with Abraham and he foretold by the prophets. And, conclu- and it will conclude with the gathering of believers from every corner of the world. So Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, the Lord asserts, From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. This verse anticipates the spread of God's name and worship among every nation. Amen? Habakkuk 2.14, the Lord declares that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters covers the sea. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 45 verse 22 says this, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return void. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Psalm 100 is a glimpse of a future reality yet to be fulfilled, but vividly described in Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 through 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with one voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What Psalm 100 is doing is pointing us to what it truly means to be on the right side of history. This is what it means to be on the right side of history. This is where history is going to this day, to a day when all people will have covenant knowledge of God and will stand before the throne of God and towards the end of this age when at every name, when at that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Global recognition of God's authority and kingship and goodness that leads to the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 100. And it is the only way that the command to make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the people, can be obeyed. Amen, church? All people, you have been commanded by your God and your King to worship Yahweh with joy and thanksgiving because he is good and he is God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us to believe these things, O oh Lord. Help us to believe that you are, that your love is steadfast, that you are good, and that your faithfulness endures from generation to generation, O oh God. Lord, we pray that for those that don't know you today, that you would turn their heart and their affection to you, O oh God. You will cause them to bow their knee to you and worship you as king. And for your people, God, who struggle with serving you with joy, I pray, God, that they would 
know and learn more of your wonderful grace and mercy in Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.